You guys got quiet. That's a first. <laughs> My heart is full this morning because I get to preach the gospel. Um, there's nothing better, no better message. And I, there's a story I heard about Edward M. Justin. You guys know about it. We have a Justin room here. He was one of the first foreign missionaries to be sent from the United States. And he came back after like 20 years in Burma. Um, and he was speaking at a church. And obviously people crowded in because they're really excited to hear what Adoniram Justin has to say after 20 years in, in Burma. And then um, he shared the gospel, and everybody was visibly disappointed. And on his way home, his wife told him, why didn't you tell them some, you know, exotic stories, or, you know, that you must have so many cool stories from being 20 years there. And, and Adoniram Justin just couldn't get it. <laughs> he was like, I told him the best story I know. <laughs> like, it's the best story ever. I mean, what more is, what's more exciting than the gospel? And I, that's how I feel this morning. I mean, it's the gospel uh, that we have in Christ. It's, there's nothing better. And uh, I usually, uh, when I come to preach, someone comes up and prays with me, usually one of the pastors. And today, there wasn't anybody there, so I feel kind of unarmed. I'm going to pray for myself right now. <laughs> and if you could join in praying for me, that'd be great. God, we submit to you, to your word. We come before your word not to manipulate it for our purposes, to hear what we want to hear, but to hear what you have to say to us and to submit to it because it's your word. We ask that you renew us, you transform us, that you would strike us once again with the wonder of the gospel and captivate our hearts with your glory and with your beauty and with your worth. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I'll read a lot for us. It says, And you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
I want you to imagine with me a, a funeral. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral where you um, have the actual body of the person displayed. Usually they put some makeup on so the person looks normal like they used to. And, uh, and if you, you walk by, they seem like there's life there. They look just the way they did before. They look like there's some light in the skin, right? They look like they have you know, lipstick on. They, they look like they could just any moment open their eyes and look at you like they used to. But when you look closer, when you wait, nothing happens. The dead tell no tales. They don't do anything. They just sit there. There's no heart beating. There's no blood pumping. There's no uh, brain activity, obviously. The cells are dying or dead. And uh, with that, I mean, the body's cold. It's obviously rigid. It's, there's no life. It's lifeless. Imagine that kind of that picture. It seems like there's all the life, the signs of life right in the body as you look at it, but there's no life at all. And that's the kind of situation that Apostle Paul's talking about here when he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Because we often think about the fact that, or some of us do, and we know, most of us know that we're going to die. We know for a fact that we're going to die, and we think about that. But do we often think about the fact that we were actually dead? We were once dead. Some of you are still dead. And that's what Apostle Paul is saying. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. What, what do you mean we're dead? What do you mean we were dead? So let's talk about that. Let me explain just how we were once dead or how some of you may still be dead in your trespasses and sins. So Apostle Paul gives us here three things that I think describe what this state of death is, spiritual death. Verse 2, it talks about this, in which you once walked following the course of this world. That's number one. You are dead in your trespasses and sins because you are living in the course of this world. And number two is following the prince of the power of the air. That's number two. And the third thing is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's the third thing. So the course of this world to the prince of the power of the air and the passions of our flesh. We are stuck in these three things. We are dead in living according to these things. So let me explain what that looks like. So what does it mean that we're following the course of this world? There's a great, uh, this, I think it's a plaque, I think, at the Parisis of fish swimming in one direction. And there's one going the other way. <laughs> it's going against the current, right? I mean, I swim to a different school. Okay, so that's kind of the, what, what they have. The course, there is a course in this world, that the direction in which this world is headed. Not all of it is contrary to God. Not all of it contradicts the will of God. But the pattern is to take us away from God, uh, to t- drive us away from him. That's the course of this world because it is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, as it says here. Um, and what are some of these courses of this world? Maybe the culture, part of our culture, that's contrary to what God is doing. And I'm just going to give you a little sketch of some of the things that I see around us. And the first one might be materialism, right? We see it in all over the place. We measure our achievement in terms of wealth. We are judged people according to, not according to their character, but according to their appearance, the way they physically appear. You want to keep accumulating more and more things, and you think that that's a source of happiness or joy and contentment. That's materialism. But that doesn't make any sense. If you live according to that principle, then you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what Apostle Paul is saying. We're, Hannah and I are getting ready to move to Louisville, right, in, in the beginning of September to be there for 10 months for a denominational training and then to come back. We know we're coming back, right? 
So we're not going to go and buy a whole bunch of furniture there, right? Invest in furniture to settle there. We're not going to go in and try to put a dime pane in the house, not that we can afford it, but we wouldn't do it, right? Because why? We know we're not staying there. It would make no sense. Why would I invest all the money and time in things that I'm not going to be able to keep? I'm going somewhere else. I'm coming back here. I'm, coming to, I'm going to Boston. I'm not going to stay in Louisville, right? It makes no sense. So why would people, if you're meant for eternity, if God created you for eternity, and that's what we are to live for, we're made for that, why would you settle? Why would you invest so much in this physical world? Why would you care so much about the materialistic things surrounding us if really we're meant to live for something else? And so it makes sense, doesn't it? If you're living that way, then you are dead in your trespasses and sins. What about naturalism, right? Or scientific rationalism? That's another course of this world. Let me ask you this question. If I asked you, you saw water boiling in the tea kettle. This is an analogy that's commonly used. You see a tea kettle boiling. I can ask you, why is the water boiling? Why is the tea kettle boiling? You can answer that question in two ways, right? The first answer you would be, oh, it's boiling because it's getting heated and the molecules, the water molecules are moving really, really fast. And at some point, it's moving, it's moving so fast that it breaks, through the, breaks apart from the surface of the molecules and then it becomes a gas instead of a water molecule, right? So what, when that, that's, that's one way to describe it. Or the second way to describe it would be simply because I want to make some tea, right? The tea kettle is boiling because I want to make some tea, right? So there's two ways to answer it. The first way is how is the water boiling? The second way is why is the water boiling? The science tells us how. It's a, by, by nature, it's a descriptive discipline. It's not a prescriptive discipline. Science can never tell us why we have to do things. It can't tell us why are we alive? Why are human beings here? What are we here for? What are we living for? What's the purpose of this life? It can't answer those questions because it's a descriptive discipline. It can tell us the physical properties of how the water boils, but it can't tell us who wants to drink tea. Yet we live as if that didn't matter. We live as if that's all there was. It's like, imagine I lost my key in a dark alley and there's this one area of that dark alley that's lit because there's a street light. And then I lost my key, so I say, oh, wait, the key must be here, right by the light, because that's all I can see. That makes no sense, does it? <laughs> the key could be anywhere. The fact that that's the only part I can see doesn't mean that it has to be there. But that's what scientific rationalism tells us. This is the only thing we can verify and describe in this fashion. Therefore, what you can't do describe in that way must not exist since you can't describe God scientifically God must not exist since you can't describe eternity that way it must not exist all that you see and feel that's all that exists that's not true and if you're living in that way then you're missing out on the way God made you to live and if you're living that way then you are living you are dead in the trespasses and sins another way in which the course of this world drives away from God may be humanism we live in a world that's centered around all of us. It's all about self-fulfillment, self-actualization, self-satisfaction. I need to get my needs met. It's all about me. And in that way, we are also have such a bloated sense of our human achievement and what we can accomplish that we think that we can change, fix all the world's problems by, with our programs and plans. You know what? We can start a non-profit organization that's going to deal with poverty, right?
right? That's going to provide relief and development for impoverished areas. But can those programs or nonprofit organizations deal with the greed in people's hearts that caused those economic injustices? We can come up with a rescue program plan, which, which just happened. There was a huge raid conducted by the FBI to, uh, to raid uh, people that, that were running um, sex trafficking in our country. That happened two weeks ago. It was very successful. So a lot of people were um, caught and, and jailed for that. So that's great, but can our programs, our police raids, deal with the lust in people's hearts that cause all this? Because more is just going to spring up in other places, isn't it? We think that human condition is the only thing that matters when really it's our human nature that we need to deal with. And we humans can't deal with that on our own. We need something bigger than us to transform our hearts. And if you're living as if that's all that matters, then we're living. We're not living. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. I can go on about all these things, the way the course of this world drives us away. But what about something simple like busyness? That's where we get our sense of purpose, our sense of well-being, our sense of importance. I'm so busy. So much to do. Satan doesn't need to get us to commit some great crime or sin to get us away from God. All he needs to, to do is keep us from thinking about God. Keep us busy enough so we never sit, reflect on what God has done for us and to live in light of that truth. How is the course of this world? This course of this world is very powerful. It's hard to resist it. We, sometimes we don't even notice it because that's, it's like fish in the water. It doesn't know that it's in the water, right? That's how we live. But if that's the way you live, then you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Let's look at the second thing. Following the prince of the power of the air. What's the prince of the power of the air? Right? In the, air is another word for air is wind. And that's another word for spirit. So when he says the power of the air, he's talking about the kingdom or the power of, of the spirits. There is a world that we don't see. That's the world of the spirits. And the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, the Satan, the accuser, as he, as he is known, is, is going around and ruling this world in that way. You think that all the evil in the world is just happening? There's something behind that. The spirit, evil spirit, working to make that happen. And the reason why this is so pernicious is that we don't see it. The reason why carbon monoxide is so dangerous is because we can't see it. A heater malfunctions and you don't think there's anything wrong. You can't smell it. You can't see it. You don't, it's, that's why it's so dangerous, right? And it can poison you and you can die from carbon monoxide. It's the same thing. If you imagine if there was a, a tyrant that came into your house that says, I'm going to put this chain around your neck. I'm going to drag you around. You're going to make me tea when I want you to make me tea. And you're going to take me to the bathroom when I want to go. Would you let that happen in your family, in your house? Of course not. But that's precisely what Satan does in our world. He enslaves people and takes them where he would go, tells them to do his bidding, and we watch because we don't even see that Satan's there. The prince of the power of the air keeps us dead in trespasses and sin. And the last thing, in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. 
Right? People nowadays talk about how uh, it's, we need to fulfill our needs. Right? That's, a par- that's a very popular kind of, kind of saying. People like to talk about that we need to have our needs met. So oftentimes, actually, if you look at kind of counseling or secular counseling uh, catalogs or, or people that are going through marital counseling and stuff like that, the thing that counselors or psychologists always come to summarize that is you, need, you are not meeting your spouse's emotional needs. That's what, they, that's what they say. But that's actually the completely wrong way to look at it. The reason why is because you're, if you're only trying to satisfy your own needs, if that's what you're in your marriage for, the marriage is not going to work. The primary orientation has to be first to serve, to give, as Christ gave and humbled himself and gave himself to us. If that's the orientation in the marriage, it's not about fulfilling your needs. It's not about you. This life is not about you. Yet we make it all about us, fulfilling our needs. Self-fulfillment is a big thing. Self-actualization is a big thing. But the Bible tells us something else. It tells us in James 4, 1 to 2. I think I have this too. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. It's the passions of our flesh, the desires that keep us dead in our trespasses and sin. It's what leads to our marital woes. It's what leads to our problems in a family. It's not... You shouldn't just, if you follow our heart, it's not going to take you to the right place if you are, your heart is tainted by sin. That's why in Jeremiah 9, 13 to 14, it said, God describes the Israelites have forsaken, he says that they have forsaken my law and I set, that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the idols. Following your heart, heart that is not renewed by God, is going to lead to idols, is going to lead to sin. So the slogan, follow your heart, do what you feel is right. That's not the right way to look at it at all. That will lead you to the wrong place. Yet that's what our world tells us to do. And if that's what you're doing, then you are dead in your trespasses and sins. What does Galatians 5, 16 to 25 say? So I say, walk, so I say, walk according to the spirit, right? Don't walk according to the flesh. Because the flesh and the, the spirit and the flesh are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. And what are the passions of the flesh that we deal with? He lists the sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, dissension, selfish ambitions, factions, and envy. All these things, these are these passions at war within us. And if we're led by the Spirit, then you don't live by that. We're alive in the Spirit, then you don't live by those things. And so if we are led by our flesh, the passions of our flesh, then we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And what happens? What's the result of this? Is God's wrath at the end of verse 3. And we are, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's sad, isn't it? And then comes one of my favorite use of the adversative conjunction in the whole Bible. But God... But God, not but that person, not but you, not but me, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. 
even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's in Christ's death and resurrection we have died and rose again. Right? And this is how God deals with the three things that keep us dead in our trespasses and sins. The course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the passions of our flesh. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. And how does he do it? Verse 6, and raised us up with him. We are not dead in our trespasses and sin any longer because we are raised with Christ. What does that mean? You died to your sin. That's what Apostle Paul talks about when he says, when, when you ask that question, hypothetical question, oh, if we're saved by grace, then shouldn't we just keep sinning so that the grace increases all the more? No, that makes no sense in Paul's theological framework because you're dead to your trespasses and sin. Dead people don't do anything. You're dead to your sin. That's not your life any longer. So why would you stay there? So he raises up. That's the first thing. That's how he deals with our passions of the flesh. We're dead in our passions of flesh. We're raised up with him. And then he says, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's how he deals with the prince of the power of the air, right? The prince of the power of the air rules that spiritual kingdom here. But Christ, he raises up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that's above and better and more powerful than the kingdom of the evil one. The more powerful than the spiritual forces of the evil one. So we don't need to do Satan's bidding any longer. You don't need to follow him. You don't need to be enslaved by him. You need to follow God, the creator who saved you, who redeemed you. You have to live in light of that freedom. That's what it means. So he raises us up with him. That's how he deals with the passions of our flesh. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He deals with the prince of the power of the air. And then finally, how does he deal with the course of this world? As Bill was sharing in the, during the worship, that's, that's not the end of the story. You don't get saved and say, oh, I'm saved, I'm good, so now I can live the rest of my life and not, you know, not do anything, right? That if you really have experienced God's love and his saving grace, then you are prompted to work and to do good works and in order to glorify him and honor him. And that's where this comes in, in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're not saved by good works. You're not created in Christ Jesus by good works, but you're created in Christ Jesus for good works. We don't obey God because we want to be loved by him. We obey God because we are loved by him. Because we are his workmanship, it's, you could just even feel the pride of God's craftsmanship in that word. You are my workmanship. So you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So go do good works because Christ saved you for that. Not because of that, but for that. And that's really important for us to get. That's what he's trying to emphasize. It's not a result of good works, as it says in verse 9, so that no one may boast. I want to talk about that a little longer. So what, but have you really experienced this freedom? Have you really experienced this new life that we have in Christ? We were once dead, but God in his grace, by his grace, makes us alive in Christ Jesus, right? But is this the reality in your life? Because some of you think, oh, maybe I, but I feel like I'm still kind of burdened by the passions of our flesh. I'm still living according to the whims of the prince of the power of the air. 
of following the course of this world? Are you living in this reality? I want to tell you a story that I think helps us to make sense of this. There's a, there's a surprise-winning book called Half the Sky by uh, two authors, Nicholas Kristof and his wife, Cheryl Wood- Woodon. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. And it's a report on the worldwide slavery in, in sex trafficking. And it's a lot of vivid stories of how girls are kidnapped or sometimes just they deceive their parents uh, in, and they say, oh, we're going to give your daughter a really good life. We're going to take her away, give her an education, give her a good life. We'll give, even compensate you, give you, you know, $500, let's say, which could be a lot of money to some families in poorer parts of the world. And say, so, so just leave your daughter to us, trust us, and we'll take good care of her. And that's just a lie. They take them, they drug use, they get them addicted to drugs, and then enslave them, rape them, and then use them as slaves. This happens all over the world. There's more slaves today than there was ever before in the history of mankind. This, this kind of slaves. And it's probably even worse than the slavery that we had in our, in our states. And, and in, there's, he has a chapter called, Rescuing the Girl is the Easy Part. He has a chapter called that. Rescuing the Girl is the Easy Part. Because you can find them. It's not hard to find them. And you take them away, and you take them away from the pimps that are using them and abusing them with drugs. And you take them away, then they're rescued. And he tells a story of, of one girl, a Cambodian teen, who, was, who had been enslaved for five years already. Her name was Mom, M-O-M-M. And she was on the verge of breakdown. And when they, they, she found a chance to escape, she, she actually had the right state of mind to, to run away. And they found her. And they brought her to, to her village. And as she was coming, crowds started to gather. Mom is back. Her family came. Her mom heard from over there is where she, she was working at a farm. I heard that her tears streaming down her face. She came. My daughter is back. She claimed her. The sad part is after a few days, without saying a word to her parents, she went back to the people that were enslaving her. Why? Because she was addicted to drugs that they were using. She said she had to have that drug. That's kind of like our state, isn't it? You've been freed. You're free. She didn't have to go back. She was free from the power and the influence of the pimp, right? She doesn't have to have that drug. She's free. She doesn't need that. That's our state, the Christian state, isn't it? We're free. Christ has freed us from the power of the evil one. He has put our flesh to death, passions of our flesh. Yet we struggle, and we still think that we need it. We still feel like we have to go back to it and stay enslaved to it. But you don't. And how can we keep reminding ourselves of this fact? How can we remind, us our, remind ourselves of this wonderful grace? What I want to emphasize is this. Is we were once dead, but God by his grace, makes us alive in Christ. We can't do that on our own. We can't make this reality in our lives on our own. As he says in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. And he emphasizes this a lot, right? In verse 8 he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and just in case you didn't get it yet, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of the work so that no one may boast. A gift is given freely, isn't it? Have you ever gotten a Christmas gift and then someone came back later and said, hey, here's the receipt, you could pay me now. Right? No, it's a gift. It's free, right? It's a free gift of God. 
And there's a reason why he emphasizes this. Like it, he says, the, just in case you don't believe it, in verse 4, he says, but God, he is rich in mercy and he has great love for us in verse 4. In verse 7, if you look at it, it says, he has immeasurable riches, the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So this is what you need to believe. If you want to really believe the gospel, if you really want to believe that God can do this for you, he can make this reality for you, that he, you can live in light of what he has done for you and not in light of your former past and your, and your trespasses and sins, then you need to believe that God is first rich enough in mercy and grace and that he is, and that he is generous enough and kind enough to give it to you. Because if you don't believe that, you can really have this free gift of God's grace. It's because you either don't believe that God can give it or you don't believe that he, want, he would give it, even if he could. Let me tell you a story to drive this home. I once, was once told this story by my preaching professor at gordon Conwell. His name is uh, Haddon Robinson. And he used to be uh, the pres- president of Denver Seminary. And as a president of seminaries, you have to do a lot of development work. You need to fundraise a lot. That's really what they do. And uh, so he was doing um, a fundraising campaign for a new sound system for the whole campus. And that was going to cost about $20,000. And he was talking to this really wealthy businessman. He's a Christian man. And he's, and he's telling him about all the needs. And, so, and the businessman said, okay, so how much would you like me to give you? And then so he thought for a little bit, oh, okay, well, how about $2,000? And then the businessman looked at him and said, you insulted me. Because you need $20,000, but you only asked me for $2,000. That tells me two things. One, you either don't think that I am rich enough, in which case you have underestimated my financial condition, or two, you do think that I am rich enough, but you don't think that I'm generous enough to give that much money. And he actually didn't take back the check and say, okay, well, now I'll write. He didn't. He made them stick to the 2000 He only gave him a $2,000 check. So he learned his lesson. But that's what we do to God. His grace really is free. But how many of you are living as if you have to earn your salvation? How many of you are more focused on your sins and your struggles and thinking, oh, I have to do this way. I have to do this better. I, have to, I can't live like this anymore. Constantly bringing yourself down in that legalistic struggle to be good enough for God. When God says, my grace is free, it's not you, it's but God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God does that, not us. I really hope that you guys get this. This I can't live without this truth. Every day I struggle to, to receive the grace of God for my life. I sin, I think, oh gosh, I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I do this to my Savior I can't believe I did this to someone that I love more than anybody. And then God comes and says, Sean, I didn't love you because you were good enough. I didn't love you because you were talented. I didn't love you or choose you because you're doing the right things and following the right path. But God, by his grace, makes us alive in Christ Jesus. And when you catch sight of that, that's what enables us to live in that freedom. And and I want to share with you 
uh, one of my favorite hymns, a verse from there that I think really gets at this. It's called, uh, Hast Thou Heard Him, Seen Him, Known Him? Any of you guys know that hymn? Okay. I think we have it to project up there. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless people of God catch sight of the peerless worth of Christ the sheer magnitude of what God has done for you the the freedom and the grace the gift that God has given you daily remind yourself of that catch sight of that when you find yourself doubting remember but God makes us alive by his grace in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are so faithful to us. You truly are greater than we can imagine. Lord, it is our default mode. It's the default mode of our hearts to think, oh, you can't possibly be that good. Your grace possibly can't be that good. But Lord, you really are greater than we can imagine. You really are. And your grace really is enough for us. It really is enough for us. So God, we pray that this would be a reality in our hearts, not just in our minds, that we would know this, your grace is enough for us that we always look to you if you have not received this gospel in your heart me exhort you and urge you to do so today. If you have been living your life trying to be good enough for somebody, for someone, you have not received the free gift of God's grace, please do so today. If you'd like to do that, please come up while the, the worship team is playing through the song and then we can pray together afterwards. God, how glorious is that statement, Lord, to us. You, God, you, God, you save us. We want to give all glory and honor to your name, Jesus. It is in your precious, glorious, wonderful name.